Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am so delighted that you all are here. Um, Did you know that October is National Pitbull Awareness Month? Well, if you didn't know, now you know. And in an effort to share more information about pitbulls, which is truth and not myth, I'm going to reshare an episode that I did with the lovely ladies over at Bark Nation. Um, There are amazing people in the pitbull rescue world, but Bark Bark Nation is particularly amazing because they take care of uh, fight ring survivors. So um, I hope you enjoy this episode. I have some really awesome new episodes coming your way in the future, y'all. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, you know that my sweet girl Tiva, we're kind of dealing with some stuff in her life right now. And because of that, Um, The new episodes of the podcast are a little bit slower to come out, so please enjoy this replay and please celebrate um, Pitbull Awareness Month by sharing some facts about pitbulls and squashing some myths. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast, hashtag Pitbull Stories edition. I have some pretty fabulous guests who are really making the world a better place for Pitbull type dogs. So ladies, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself um, for the listeners? Yeah, my name's Tori. Um, I have been with Bark Nation uh, for a little over two years now. Um, I do a lot at the shelter. We run um, a confidential shelter for our dog fighting and cruelty survivors. Um, Our shelter is really unique in the sense that we house animals um, as live evidence as they're going through their court cases. Our shelter is completely 100% volunteer run, which is really, really cool. Um, So we all, you know, our leadership team takes a lot of uh, different roles on, you know, in the shelter. Um, So we do a lot of development, we do a lot of fundraising, we do a lot of behavior work, we do a lot with transfer partners, Um, pretty much everything you can think of that goes into a shelter is volunteer run by by us, so. Yeah, and I'm Kelly, Um, I am the president and co-founder of Bark Nation, and we founded Bark Nation in 2014 um, with Paco here and a couple other dogs that were survivors of dog fighting out of um, a very large uh, national case which um, has been called the 367 case by the Humane Society of the United States and ASPCA, the two of those organizations took all the dogs. So I started out volunteering at the shelter and fell in love with um, some kind of naughty fear dogs that I just couldn't get enough of. And we brought them back and that's how Bark Nation started. Um, And we started this organization um, because there's a huge need in animal welfare, which is to house live evidence animals. And it's an extremely cumbersome aspect of anti-cruelty initiatives. Um, If we know anything about our local shelters and humane societies, they are overrun. It's very difficult for them to bring in, absorb 30, 50, 100 dogs at any given time. So we knew that if we wanted our law enforcement agencies um, to kind of dig in and really, really take this seriously um, and make an impact that we had to provide that solution. So 2014 was kind of our, our year of just kind of thinking it up. We got our first shelter of any kind of size. What year was that? 2018, July of 2018. Um, And since then we've moved into a much larger shelter. So again, we're all volunteers, myself, Tori, everybody, we all scoop poop. We all um, do behavior work. We all stuff pongs. So uh, so yeah, we're all there because we love to be there. That's amazing. Okay, so for the people listening who aren't familiar with the 367 case, can you just give a little bit more detail and insight into like what that looks like and kind of the details of that, um, that rescue effort? Absolutely. So on that case, um, uh, my capacity was volunteer at the shelter, right? At that time, um, we have gone forward into some cases kind of similar, but uh, that case was a what we call a multi-agency response effort, um, including in the investigation Um, So you had local, state, federal agencies, law enforcement agencies, all involved in that. Um, It was four different states. One day, 367 dogs were rescued off of their chains or pens or crates or wherever they were housed in isolation um, and brought to safety. So it was a pretty monumental case. Um, It was very large. Um, It was the second at the time, second largest dog fighting case at the time, um, next to the Missouri 500. Um, and for the first time, the vast majority of these animals um, were able to be placed and make it out alive. And behavior was integrated at the Humane Society of the United States and ASPCA shelters. So it was a really big honor um, to get to pull a dog like Taco, who's terrified of life, um, to be able to bring him into safety and, and give him what we hashtag all the time as life after dog fighting. Oh my God. Okay. So previously to that, 
were there not the resources to be able to successfully place dogs? Like, can you, you know, just kind of speak to your experience about like what it looked like, like managing dogs seized from a dog fighting, like, you know, ring, um, what that looked like previously, right? Because I know that a lot has changed in the like, how we can place dogs post dog fighting. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> Uh, so I can't really speak on behalf of being extremely involved in the investigation and the placement opportunities prior to that. Um, I can tell you that uh, Michael Vick's case was was pretty monumental um, in in actually starting to place these animals. You know, prior to that, they're they're looked at as um, dog killing machines, little monsters, right? That they cannot be, which I, a word that I don't really love, quote unquote, rehabilitated. Um, most of these dogs, we just let them live normal lives and we just kind of meet them where they're at and they do fantastic. Um, so the view, the public view and the public perception of these animals has changed um, combined with stricter laws. Um, it's become a federal crime. It's a felony in all 50 states to fight animals. And it didn't used to be not too long ago. I can't quote me on the year, but, um, but it's been quite, um, quite recent that that's happened. Um, in the state of Michigan specifically, um, our laws are so tight on dogfighting, and for the longest time, so many people interpreted these laws as you cannot own an animal that has been bred or used or whatnot trained for dogfighting, which, which really wasn't the case. Um, so that's one thing that we've done quite, um, quite a number on here in Michigan is, is really making sure that these animals that come out of these situations um, have a fighting chance of making it in life. Um, and to date, uh, I guess I can backtrack for a hot second. Both Tori and I are CBCCKA certified as well. Um, we have multiple other credentialed individuals in our leadership team and just our, our general volunteer base. Um, so we dug really, really deep into um, every aspect of their lives, their, their breeding, what their lives are like, you know, their critical periods in life. Um, how are they trained? How often are they trained? Um, and we're still digging into this, right, to see what's learned behavior, what's potentially, um, you know, genetics, and, and how can we help them um, live full lives. And, and to date, we have, this year, we've taken 117 dogs, I believe, wow. out of blood sport, and we've euthanized one for behavioral reasons. So it's been a, a pretty um, a pretty successful, I would say, uh, uh, program. And we do uphold public safety, too, so we're not necessarily afraid to, to make the tough decisions, um, but we just make sure that we're being fair to the animals and fair to the public. And if that animal can be safe in their environment and have quality of life, then we will support and celebrate them every step of the way. Oh my God. And I, I, I just want to give you guys so much kudos because I love how you took your expertise, right. And behavior and training and like all of that and utilize that in a, in a capacity where it really needed to be used. Right. I think that dogs who come from a, a fighting ring, there's, there's a lot of intimidation, I think, for even trained professionals, right? Because I think that there's one, le the legality of it, right? Like there's, there's a much bigger consequence, right? If we have a dog who isn't going to be safe in public. So um, I love what you guys have done there. Okay. So I want to hear just a little bit of your individual stories as far as like training and how you kind of got into it. And then I think let's jump into what y'all are doing now. So Tori, I don't know if you want to kind of go first and just give the listeners a little bit of a backstory and like how you got into training and all of that. Yeah. So I wouldn't, even though I am credentialed now in behavior, I wouldn't still consider myself an actual like dog trainer. I don't go into clients' homes. I don't work directly with, you know, one-on-one -on -one with somebody and their family pet. Um, my passion really lies in, in shelter dogs. Um, and I think that my want and my need to uh, become better and become actually certified, you know, in the training industry, there's a lot of things that are up in the air, but to actually have some letters behind my name and have some credentials came from just working with our bad dogs. You know, we have, we hashtag bad dog club and we love them so much for it, but some dogs just struggle, you know, a little bit harder. Um, and so being able to work with Kelly and, uh, and a couple other members of our leadership team and just our volunteer base um, and seeing how they were interacting with those struggle bus dogs um, made me want to be like, wow, I wish I could look at a dog and say, okay, maybe you're acting that way because of this. If we change this about your environment, maybe this will happen. Um, so that was really cool to me. And the thing that I love about dog training and behavior is that you're never an expert. You know, you're constantly learning new things and every single dog that you come across, you're going to learn something from, you know? So I love that every day I can walk into our shelter 
<clears throat> I can talk to, I can talk to, I can hang out with either, <laughs> either members of the bad dog club or some of our, our, you know, our green dogs that all of our volunteers can handle. Um, and I walk away learning something new every single time. So I do, uh, I do love working with shelter dogs. I also have um, my very first working line dog at home. <laughs> and she is an absolute menace in my life. Um, God loves so much. So that's also bringing about a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, I like learning about tricks. I like learning about enrichment. I like learning about brain work. I like learning um, just how we can, how we can make our dog's lives better um, and looking at my dog at home and then transferring that into some of our shelter dogs who are struggling in kennel. Um, I think some of that, you know, sometimes gets overlooked. We're so worried, especially working with dog fighting survivors. We're like, okay, how can we make this dog go out into the world and succeed? Whereas I like to look at that, but I also like to think, okay, how can we make this dog's time in our shelter more enjoyable? And then how can we give this potential family maybe some really fun, interactive things that they can do with their dog that are gonna in turn make that dog succeed in their home? So that's kind of my little spiel on, on behavior and training. <laughs> so cool. Okay, Kelly, what about you? Yeah, um, so let's see, what year would it have been? Maybe 2011, um, I had a wiener dog, a shepherd, wiener dog and a shepherd. And I lived in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and there was a skinny pit bull. And I thought, cool, yeah, like this dog looks cool. I want another dog for whatever reason. Brought the dog home. I was like in a field. We all slept on the floor together, just immediate integration, which I just, I'm so jealous of that part of my life still. I'm so jealous as I rotate two dogs in my own home right now. Um, and uh, that dog was an amazing, amazing, amazing dog. And one year I took her to what we consider mid camp. It's like our family camping trip. And it was like 98 degrees outside and the dog hadn't pooped. Her name's Brea. She hadn't pooped in like two days. She was so hot. I have her on all my family. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Brea is the nicest dog in the world. She'll never do anything. Brea is doing, you know, in hindsight, the most amazing job. She's letting out little growls. She's letting us know I'm over it. I didn't listen to her. And um, thank God, you know, we're only looking at like a level two bite, but at one point she lunged at a child and made contact, right, with the child. And at that point, like when I say, if there's any time in my life, which I know is gonna sound very, very watered down, but that I, I had like flashbacks afterwards, it, it was traumatizing for me. Um, and at that point I thought, you know what, I can either learn or I can, you know, get rid of my dog and say pit bulls are horrifying, right? Because at that moment in my mind, she, proved everybody else right. And I was the idiot. And I really was, you know, looking back on that, there's so many things that I would do differently. So from there, um, I worked in the rescue industry for a little while in the city of Detroit in 2011. And then I went on to work for an organization called Teachers Pet. And they, um, it's the first time I really got into training. And uh, they're all, you know, force-free, non-aversive. Um, and they pair kind of your ding-dong shelter dogs, your hard-to-adopt shelter dogs um, with incarcerated youth. So it was Awesome. I, I absolutely love my time with that. I went down um, and I deployed quite a few times with the main side of the United States on dog fighting cases. And really, I was just out of my league. There were people that were so much better than me and knew so much more than me when it came to behavior. And I would try to like hold conversation and and stay in, the, you know, but I wasn't. I, I was completely, you know, overrun by people that were so knowledgeable. So at that point, I thought, you know what, I, I really um, want to kind of up my game. And from there I've worked, you know, in rescue, I've worked in municipal sheltering. I've had to euthanize animals for next to nothing, which I would never hope upon anybody in the name of reform and trying to up a live release rate. Right. Um, and similar to Tori, I, uh, I am very big into shelter behavior. I actually, her dog, the one that was are nuts. Oh my gosh. Oh, nuts. Her name, her dog's name is Dale, by the way. And I won't go to Tori's house. I'm like, Dale is just going to put the wet tennis ball in my lap for 10 hours after Tori's already walked her and taken, taken her on a five hour hike, you know, and done everything in the world. Um, I really like the classical conditioning side of things, your desensitization, classical conditioning. I love working with dogs that don't quite understand the world. I love making that bond with animals. Um, and the other thing I really, really am big into is, um, humane handling and humane field response. I understand that dogs are not always gonna be easy to handle, but the way that we handle them, even if that includes not handling them, making their, their environment in a shelter hands-free for a little while, um, that's really, really big to me. So I focus a lot on operating classical conditioning and what we're even doing through a kennel. Um, and then how do we keep consistency with all of our different volunteers and all of our different handlers with these dogs that you know, may never have been handled like this in their entire lives. So I very much so, I'm a strategic person. I love taking in the information. I love beating up the ideas of a dog, you know, and, um, and 
figuring out, you know, how we can help them be successful to Tori's point, both in shelter and afterwards, because we know they're not, we're not their last stop. So, um, so yes, again, I'm not a very successful trainer. Um, when I actually am just training somebody's dogs, but I love to consult on it. And I really, really love impulsive ding-dongs, like your jumpy, mouthy, clumpy dog. Um, I have so much fun working with them and just little tiny, you know, uh, um, wins every single time we're out. So, right. Oh my God. And I love hearing your story, Kelly, because I think that so many people can relate to that, right? That like, for whatever set of circumstances, this pit bull type dog comes into their lives, right? And and I think that a lot of us get lucky, right? We're like, oh yeah, we just brought this dog into our life and it was okay. And then, you know, something happens and it makes you question everything, right? You're like, are pit bulls aggressive? And you're like, no, 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 right? Like there was all this, all this whole set of circumstances that led to this incident. So I love so much that you let that be like a pivotal learning moment for you because like, I think a lot of people listening can totally relate to that, myself included, right? Like I had no idea what I was doing. I adopted a pit bull type dog and then he attacked another dog. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and now I'm a dog trainer. So here we are, right? Like, <laughs> I think we all are fortunate enough to get like those challenging dogs that push us to be better. And then every subsequent dog just gets to benefit from everything we've learned from them. I think that's, I, I love that too. And, and so many of like, I found in animal welfare, so many of your best fosters or adopters are people that had no idea what they were getting it, themselves into and adopted a dog that had a lot of opinions or had specific challenges that really just kept them on their toes. And, uh, and now are like seasoned pros at it. And I, I think it's important, you know, we try to set all the animals up for, you know, utmost success, but especially in a shelter system, we don't know what every aspect of their life is going to be like and how they're going to respond to things. Right. So, um, so yeah, we're just consistently focusing on how to, um, cla utilize classical conditioning. Number one, from the second we get these animals, every time you see a dog, no matter if you love that dog, or you hate that dog, everything good is going to happen, right? We have to operate within the constraints of a shelter. So it's not as easy as saying, okay, well, I'm going to make sure I go to a cemetery at 10 o'clock at night when nobody's there and you're never going to see a dog, you know? Um, we do have to move dogs through paths, but um, but we always try and strive to to up our game on uh, on making it more effective for the individual animal. Yeah. Okay. So I I want to hear about kind of like the progression. So like y'all have a a facility now, and how many animals can you warehouse at this point? Well, if we could <laughs> up to like 180. Um, okay. We haven't really gone over like 70 though, and usually it's about 50 or under. Okay. And then can you help the listeners understand like why, what you do is a necessity, right? Cause I don't think everybody understands kind of like the, the, the legality of how this happens, right? Like, okay, there's a dog fighting bus. We seize the dogs. What does that look like from like a legal standpoint until those dogs are like safe to be adopted or, or, or not, I guess. For sure. So I can definitely speak to the sheltering side and then Kelly can jump in from, uh, you know, law enforcement and, and the whole prosecution side. Um, but the, the big hole in the system was these dogs were going, you know, they're seized from this property and then they're going to likely the city's municipal shelter um, that also has to take in strays and owner surrenders and all of these other animals. Um, and sometimes these dogs, I mean, we have one dog right now that's been in our care for two years. You know, so sometimes these cases can, can extend for a long period of time. Um, and those municipal shelters aren't always equipped to, to hold kennels for up to 50 dogs for that length of time. You know, at that point, they're gonna be euthanizing all of these stray dogs that are coming in right off the street because they have no room. You know, they have no room to do anything. So I think that that's a really important thing that we do is we only strictly um, handle court case animals. Um, and we're equipped to do that. We're getting better at it. Um, you know, and we're, I think, arguably one of the best in the nation at it, um, you know, with, with our volunteer base. So uh, from that side of things, we, you know, we rely heavily on Kelly. She's uh, ingrained pretty uh, closely with the, the actual law enforcement side. Um, so she's constantly trying to prosecute these owners, trying to push for owner surrender, trying to push for, um, you know, Bark Nation to have disposition of these animals. Um, at that point, we'll work uh, with all of our transfer partners within the state of Michigan and surrounding um, to try to place animals to where they're gonna be successful. Um, so we have a lot of transfer partners that can take really, really easy dogs. You know, dogs that we do dog-dog intros and they do phenomenal and you know, they're gonna be an easy placement. 
Um, and then we have other transfer partners that have a really awesome behavior team that we can send our struggle bus dogs to also. Um, so that's like a, a matchmaking process. One of our uh, other shelter managers, Jenna, really heads that up um, and she moves our dogs pretty quickly after we're able to get to this position of them. Nice. Yeah, from, um, from the legal aspect of it. So animals are evidence. So just as if we seized a gun, which we don't seize guns, but if a gun was seized from a property or you know a murder weapon, that, that evidence has to be preserved, right? So as does the live evidence aspect of it. So regardless of if on scene that owner decides he's going to legally voluntarily surrender those animals, great, okay, we just took 30 dogs, all of them are surrendered, fantastic. Regardless of what happens and, and how we get disposition or ownership of these animals, so that can be through surrender, it can be through a legal forfeiture um, process, Maybe the owner wasn't present and we leave notice and they don't contact us within 10 days and we can abandon those animals out. No matter what we do, we still have to, for a certain period of time, preserve these animals as evidence. And what that means is immediately, we have to document them in the field and then we immediately upon um, intake to our facility or to um, a triage center or something of that sort, depending on where we're at, we have forensic veterinary exams for these animals. So we have to notate every single aspect of what these animals look like physically, um, medically, behaviorally, everything, um, the second we bring them into our facility. Um, reasons being, we need to make sure that we can prove that this is how this animal was, right? When we when we rescued that animal. Um, also, we need to be able to show, say an animal is emaciated, whether or not it's a dog fighting case, that animal is emaciated. If we feed that animal a proper diet, uh, breed, size, appropriate food, does that animal gain weight, right? So sometimes proving cruelty to an animal or neglect as well can take time. And whether it's a neglect or cruelty case or a, a blood sport case that can include neglect and cruelty, we need to really make sure we're doing our justice by these animals and, and really recording it and, and preserving every aspect of them. Uh, for a while ago, I remember a couple of years ago, they used to say like, don't, don't do behavior work because we want to really see what this animal's you know, behavioral disposition is. But the reality is, is that whether or not you're actively trying to do behavior work or not, just putting your hands on this animal every single day and treating them with compassion and kindness is going to change the way that they are, right? So from a humane aspect, we're able to, to move forward in that direction. So yes, so like uh, to Tori's point, um, especially with COVID right now, this has been a extremely trying year. Um, we did a rate of 53 dogs in February. Um, the majority of them we still don't have legal ownership of um, because the court systems have been shut down or have other options, many of them being working breed dogs, which has posed <laughs> amazing challenges and opportunities for learning at our shelter. Um, but we, uh, yes, we must hold them the entire time. We also do run a live evidence foster program as well. Being a foster in this program is very cumbersome. It is very, there's a lot of rules on it, but sometimes dogs you know, may need for, for age purposes, medical purposes, behavioral purposes, may need the comfort of a home um, as well. So then when, to Tori's point, when we get disposition of them, it's a party, we're so excited, and uh, we sterilize and- uh, Jenna gets them out of here. <laughs> get them out as fast as we get. Then we offer a ton of post-adoption support as well. Right. Oh my God. So it sounds like it is a very labor intensive process to document and evaluate the dog's coming into your care. So like, I can really envision here, like how a municipal shelter is not equipped to do this, right. And how that probably affects like outcomes of cases and stuff, just because there's not proper recording of evidence and documenting of like who these dogs truly are. Yeah. And, and there are times now, like our local animal control agency, um, you know, if they're on scene and they believe it's dog fighting, but they have to seize these animals for whatever reason, we make sure that we get out there that same day or the next day to relieve them of, you know, the care and custody of that animal um, or those animals, I should say, and, uh, and make sure that we're, we're all consistent in our documenting and such. But, but you're correct. Um, sometimes it doesn't matter if somebody did the crime or they didn't. Sometimes it's a technicality in the case that can make or break the case. So um, we're always, always upping our game and striving to be better and more consistent. I've spent the last like week trying to figure out a better form for our intake exams. And we're just always kind of trying to find ways to, uh, yeah, to be better, to document better and to, uh, to, to assist the case in better ways. Right. Okay. So um, you do a lot of documentation and intake, and then you all are handling uh, behavior evaluations too, right? So observing how they are with, with people. And then how does it work as far as like 
evaluating them like with dogs like is there like a legal aspect of that where like if they come no so so you guys can like move forward with dog testing kind of like at at your convenience or when the dog is ready like can you just tell the listeners a little bit more like what that progression kind of looks like obviously it depends per dog and per case but Sure. Yeah. So, so we're always going to want to have an idea of how that dog is with another dog, but we also know that in a shelter setting with higher levels of circulating cortisol, like we may or may not be successful. You know, a dog may act one way toward another animal and maybe really not enjoy them in real life. They may be flooded. They may not, you know, um, or uh, they may act just an ass, you know, with another animal and really given the appropriate, you know, time, um, or scenario environment, they may be very successful. So how we kind of started off is the dogs that are going to be enriched by being with another animal, we try to provide that to them daily if possible. Um, if a dog, yeah, if a dog we can tell is really, really struggling, not having any kind of conspecific interaction, that's going to be our priority. Um, we do a lot through kennel. We do a lot of parallel play. Um, I, this is an area where I am the worst. I need to like drink a fifth of vodka before I watch anybody do a dog <laughs> intro. I am not doing it. I hate it. I hate it. I don't care if they're chihuahuas. I hate it. I'm not doing it. Um, but we do have some people that are really, really good at that, right? So the goal is always, always, like I, I don't ever, we don't ever strive to say, okay, slam intro. Did the dogs do well? That's never our goal. Our goal is always to say, okay, you know, what's your comfort level here? And then we'll pick up there next time. Um, we... For placement purposes, again, dog aggressive dogs are placed all the time. Um, and this is a very arbitrary kind of rule of ours, but can this animal operate through a fence line with another dog? Can this animal go on a walk? And you know, what is that animal's drive to get toward another animal? And those are the things we're gonna work on. Um, we do incorporate muzzle training and things of that sort as well to help that animal succeed. But if an animal's quality of life is impacted by the fact that they're so driven to get to another animal or they're gonna jump through a window, we actually did place a dog that put his head through an oven. Oh yeah, we did. <laughs> an oven when he saw his reflection, but he was 11 years old and he had been in the game for forever and he has the most amazing, amazing home that takes him so seriously. So you know what? He's doing a great job, but uh, but yes, we, uh, do you have anything to add to that? I think on the opposite side of that, we do have some dogs where um, whether there's still evidence or not, we have found that they really are uncomfortable with other animals. So I think the, the cool thing about our shelter is we have different areas that we can move those dogs so that they're not constantly stressed out by having to look at or walk by other animals every single day. Um, they're in their own little private area um, and then we can pull them out and we can work dog dog um, specific with them, you know, when we need to, um, but they're not constantly living in this state of stress when they're in their kennel too. I think something that's really interesting and kind of specific not necessarily specific, but but a little bit more generalized to, to survivors of dog fighting is that they commonly grow up on a property with large amounts of animals in very close proximity to each other. Um, when you think of dog fighting, not every one of those dogs are going to fight. Not every one of those dogs want to fight even with the most perfect conditioning and breeding and everything else. Um, so lack of reactivity is common. Um, I don't wanna say dog aggression is common, but we do see times where they are they lack reactivity toward another animal. It's almost sheer avoidance, which I know a lot of people can misconstrue as, oh, they, they're fine, you know, but then given the opportunity to engage, um, they may take that chance, you know, uh, so, so we do always have to preach to our team that just because they're not reactive doesn't mean that we wouldn't, you know, maybe see something down the road, um, and when we do place, when we do place um, dogs that we don't really have a lot of, of, of conspecific information about, especially if, if we move them quickly, um, we tell our transfer partners that, right? We don't know. We just, you know, we tell them what we know. This dog has been successful parallel playing through kennel. This dog, you know, what have you, has gone on a buddy walk with this dog of this size and has been successful. So we really try not to overpromise and underdeliver um, for the well-being of that animal. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I love that you bring that up because I think that it just speaks to, right, that like, dogs can habituate, right? Like if they've been living next to lots of other dogs, of course, we're not going to see reactivity, right? And I, and I love how you bring that up, right? Because that's not a promise of how they're going to do with dogs, right? That's just a, a product of the environment that they were raised in, right? So mm -hmm. I think that 
obviously we never want to see dogs on chains raised for dog fighting, but that is something that just kind of comes with the territory is that they are conditioned to live in close proximity. Not that they're not going to be aggressive, but right. They, they, they probably have a higher level of tolerance of dogs in their space than maybe like a dog who, you know, was like puppy mill status or something like that. But yeah, absolutely. And the other thing we haven't touched on, but I do just want to throw it out there. Um, American Pit Bull Terriers, we're one of the few organizations that have this amazing ability to work with the American Pit Bull Terrier, right? And um, these dogs are bred very specifically. There's no, oh, I'm going to steal your backyard dog for a bait dog or this or that. Like, that's not how this works. It's not how they're conditioned. It's not none of that. These dogs, um, their pedigrees and their bloodlines are highly prized. Um, and in that, uh, American Pitbull Terriers are insanely human social. They are everybody, you know, I remember my first time going down to volunteer and being, being very afraid um, of what I, am I capable of handling these dogs? And really our group of dogs towards humans are um, about as easy as you can get uh, to the point where, you know, in the sport of dog fighting, most dog fighters don't want a dog that's human aggressive and that animal will be killed if they're human aggressive. So we get all these little like 35 to 50 pound wiggle butts that are just cute <laughs> as heck and jumping all over you and uh, it's a party. So whatever we do see, you know, with some other um, behavioral issues, which I think by and large is present in any large number of animals, um, we definitely hit the jackpot on just fun, loving little goofballs. Oh my God. That is so sweet. So I, I want to highlight because I know that y'all's focus is really making sure that the dogs in your care for whatever duration that is are living as enriched a life as they possibly can, despite the conditions y'all are kind of forced to like, you know, to, to keep sucks. them. Yeah. Okay. So being in a shelter sucks. Yeah. So, so tell us more about that because, oh my God, it's like, I know you do like Thanksgiving Kongs, like you guys go above and beyond. Right. And like, really, I think that it's, you probably see an amazing trans transformation from like when they're there and then they get placed because they know how to survive and thrive with their needs being met. And they're like, oh, now I'm in a home and I can do that. Yeah. And they're also very fat by the time they leave oh, us. 100%. <laughs> We're really good at that. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think the dog's usually go through kind of a phase when they come to us, you know, they come, uh, you know, starving, living off of a chain, living in a basement, uh, not very good conditions. They come to Bark Nation and it's like, woohoo, this is awesome. Like I'm getting fed. I have somewhere warm. I have water. I have toys. This is great. Um, and then you get these dogs where now we've had them since February and they're hitting this, like this again. Oh my gosh. And so they, they like go into this like really heightened excitement and then they get into like their routine, you know, being in a shelter, even one as enriched as ours sucks. Dogs are social. Like she said, they're not, you know, they're, they're insanely human social. They don't want to be locked in a kennel for 23, 22 hours a day. Um, especially now we have these working, working dogs and they really, really, really shouldn't be locked in this kennel for 23 hours a day. So um, we try to do as much as possible, both on our AM and PM care shifts and then during the day as well, um, getting them out, playing with toys. We do a lot of clicker training. We do a lot of, uh, like Kelly said, desensitization and counter conditioning. Um, we take some of them, you know, if we're able to out on field trips, they get to go to the park, they get to go on walks, hit the drive-through, like do all of this fun stuff that you should be able to do when you're a dog. Um, but, you know, sheltering just sucks. Dogs aren't supposed to be warehoused like they are, you know, so we are supposed to be a very, very temporary stop um, on their life after dog fighting. And so that's why we rely heavily on Kelly to, uh, <laughs> to push the cases forward and make sure that we can get the dogs in and out as quickly as possible. Yeah, and we have entire enrichment programs for the dogs. So every dog gets out of their kennel twice daily, um, which I think is important. You know, they, they, a lot of times the dogs learn their routines and they get excited to go back to their kennels because they know they're going to get enrichment as well. It's kind of so, sad when you're out with them. Like, hey, out with me longer. Yeah. And they're like, excuse me, I want my peanut butter bone. They're like waiting at the kennel door. You're like, sis, we just got out here. <laughs> <laughs> like Madame Maxime. She's yes. just done. She's over us. Um, so, so the way we do it, and it kind of always changes, you know, um, but on a normal day, the dogs, everybody gets out, right? We utilize pine shavings in our shelter too, because I think when we look at enrichment, we fail to remember like tactile enrichment. And even just like, what does it feel like to, to lay on, you know, a cold floor with, with urine or versus, you know, inches of shavings that are soft. We give dogs, we'll give dogs crana beds and they're like, oh, I think I'm gonna just lay on these shavings and they just don't <laughs> want it. I'm like, this is a $150 bed, what are you doing? Um, but we try to individualize their care as much as possible. Um, and that includes even, 
limited ingredient diets for the dogs that need it, things of that sort. What do they find palatable, you know? Um, but they'll get, uh, they go back in their kennel after their time out. So they get fed in the morning. They uh, go back in their kennel. They come out, they go back in their kennel and they all get a peanut butter Nyla bone. So it's Nyla bone with peanut butter rolled in kibble with a paper bag twisted around it. So it looks like a drumstick <laughs> and they have so much time to shred the bag. And if they eat the bag, it doesn't matter. Right. Like, but they get to shred the bag and they get to eat the kibble and they chew the Nyla bone. Um, at night we'll do Kongs, um, a ton of, a ton of enrichment Kongs right now. I think we're doing pumpkin and honest kitchen. Um, we take all donations of honest kitchen, um, and, uh, just to keep it really easy on their tummies, um, or they'll get chews. Tori is taking up 90% of our shelter with enrichment boxes right now. I swear to God, she makes us save like the largest boxes to throw in these dogs' kennels. Um, yeah. um, we do a lot of, um, again, since they are evidence, we have to be a little careful of putting stuffies in their kennel or anything that they can ingest. Um, so we do a lot of like Westpaw uh, toys, all of the different Westpaw toys, Go Nuts, Kongs, Nyla Bones, uh, anything that's going to be super durable. Um, for that animal. And we we really just kind of let them choose their enrichment as well. So we'll do scent of the days. Um, we have dance parties with them, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. <laughs> we have one dog where you try to put him back into his kennel and he just pitches a fit and he's a big old mastiff, you know, he's like 110 pounds or something. And he, he can't quit. Just, he, he quits. Oh, he lays down, he goes belly up and you just can't get him anywhere. And so we have these little like push carts that we normally push the shavings around or, you know, you push whatever big stuff around and you get right next to him. His name is Cornelius and he just hops right on the little cart and then he gets a little ride back to his kennel. <laughs> so that's like Cornelius's enrichment of the day is getting his chariot ride. He does. He does. He does. It's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. And then we have literally all over our shelter, every X pen that we have, every section, has high value treats, lower value treats, um, and limited ingredient treats for the dogs. Plus we keep spray cheese and everything else. And we have these very fashionable uh, little uh, Dickies tool belts that we all use for treat pouches. Uh, <laughs> high fashion. High fashion. Um, oh two outdoor spaces. So an outdoor space that has X-Pens and an outdoor alley where the dogs can just run on pee gravel. You know, it's not perfect. We don't have acres of land, um, but we have options. Yeah. Oh so, right. And it sounds like you're just doing everything you can with the resources that you have, which is remarkable. So, um, Kelly, can you tell us just a little bit more about like what the timeline is looking like? So obviously I'm sure it depends like if the owner of the dogs is surrendering them, like, can you tell us just more about like, kind of like what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So again, each one of these are different. Um, so the surrender is our quickest option. Um, I mean, and they have the right to surrender at any given time. They also have the right not to surrender their animals. Now we do under our law, under 75049, have the ability to um, do kind of quick forfeiture. They have 14 days to pay 30 days of care. Where this kind of becomes an issue is if we're doing an ongoing investigation and we don't want to necessarily, um, if we've suppressed our warrants, we don't want to disclose the fact that the main reason why we're at your location is for dog fighting. That gets a little tricky. Um, so uh, the other option is if they just don't contact us, like we'll leave our information, you know, that can, we can get a, a 10 day um, abandonment. Most of our dogs, I would say, stay with us for a couple months. Um, again, this COVID time, um, everybody has the right to an in-person trial. Right. And if they don't want to waive that, which why would you if you're out on bond or something of that sort, it gets pushed back and pushed back. So one of our cases from February, you know, our exam is in January. So it's really tough and he does not want to surrender, he or she does not want to surrender their animals. Um, so um, we are constantly working uh, and getting very creative at our laundry list of ways to get ownership of these animals. And the good news is, is that working with our forfeiture division, um, we have other options too, you know, things that maybe would push them a little bit to, to maybe surrender their animals a little bit quicker. We can, um, uh, dog fighting under MCL 75049 um, falls under nuisance abatement as well. So if we can prove that animals are being fought on real property, we can seize that real property as well, which includes homes and things of that sort. So um, we're really, you know, we're in the cases that we take, um, we're fairly confident going in that these dogs will never go back on those properties, right? But sometimes it's just, you know, timeline-wise, what's best for the case. Um, but we also have to look at what's best for the animals too. So, so yeah, it's, it's, we're learning as we go. It's been a few years uh, really heavily sheltering these animals. And so 
sometimes we're still having to get creative on things, um, which is kind of hard for the course. Yeah, for sure. So, um, okay. So if they don't surrender and like, you know, whoever had the dogs is like, charged with whatever are you then able to safely adopt dogs out okay yeah okay. so that's yeah. kind of the yeah. progression okay usually at some point because what we do as well is we calculate restitution as well on these dogs so there's a cost of care per day um and per visit and whatnot that we have these animals so usually as the case goes on we revisit it um with the defendant multiple times or their attorney and say hey you know this is where we're at you know can you do the right thing? Okay, you know, are you willing to do this? Um, we can't coerce somebody into giving up their dogs, but um, we can certainly be honest with them. I, I let them all know right in the beginning, these are your rights. You can, you have the right to surrender your dog. You have the right not to surrender your dog. You have the right to surrender some of them, you know, and usually what ends up happening is we'll get kind of a mixture of that. Maybe they'll surrender a few here and there, um, but it really depends on each individual um, defendant's uh, situation, you know? Um, how, do they think they have a case? Do they think they don't have a case? That kind of a thing that all kind of goes into it. So, um, so yeah, we, we try and we try to get creative and we try to move these animals as fast as possible. Um, but sometimes it's just tough. Right. But it's tough on them. Yeah. So has there ever been a situation in which the dogs were returned? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm like, I hope that no, that's how come to, but. No way. No way. Yeah, they not only have to fight everybody at the prosecutor's office, but every single volunteer at Berkeley <laughs> have to put those dogs back. <laughs> yes, no, um, no, like I said, we're fairly certain going into that because the animals themselves are, are in essence paraphernalia in many situations, right? So we look at things like the breed of the animal, how they were housed on the property, what their bite wound pathology is, um, all sorts of things. And in the state of Michigan, again, our laws are really, really tough and it's illegal to uh, own, buy, sell, import, export, transport, you know, all sorts of different things for the purpose of dogfighting or their offspring, you know, so, so we have a pretty good leg to stand on in those situations that we can prove at least, even if the case kind of goes to heck, that these animals were in fact used for this purpose. So we cannot um, have people own them for that purpose again. So, right. yeah. We're, we're getting our legs underneath us. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Well, and I'm sure with everything in life, right? You learn, you get better at it as you go, right? Oh yeah. Oh, I swear. I like, we'll, we'll revisit a case like a year later. And I look at Tori and I was like, everything we did was garbage. This is horrific. These photos suck. And what the I shit to, were we doing? I have to come in and say, yeah, but look at the most recent one. And how much better <laughs> like, let's talk you off the ledge here. But it is, I mean, our entire team, whether it's field response or behavior or self-reform. I mean, we look back even a week ago and we're like, oh my gosh, like you just get better. Every time you do things, you get better and better. And can I tell you how we focus so hard on humane, like field response and handling and we carry every single dog off property. Like we've never had an issue. Even, even if we did have to use a control stick or something, which we haven't had to, we would still do that in a humane manner because we know how we, how to do it. We know what we're doing, right? Um, the other piece of the puzzle is that we're not afraid at our shelter, um, especially if we know that it's going to be a longer term stay for a dog to assist them pharmaceutically if they need it, you know, with a huge range of things from Soliquin to CBD to, you know, uh, Trazodone, <laughs> Clonidine, Clonidine for our jumpy mouthy dogs, just you know, jumpy, mouthy, impulsive behavior we found just doesn't get better in a shelter, but if we can help them with a little Clonidine and a little, uh, a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fluoxetine, yes, Frozac. You know, a lot of times we're able to see these animals just learn and make such progress and then be able to wean back off of that, you know, if, if their owners so choose for them to do that. So um, yeah, everything we do is focused on the quality of life and safety um, of our team and the animals. Oh my God. Right. And keeping them content until they can go live their best lives as they deserve with an owner in a home. Exactly. Oh my God. Okay. So Kelly, I know you touched on this just a little bit, but um, obviously you guys are, are observing dogs and you're very clear about dogs. If they are not safe to live in a public setting, you're not doing that. But it sounds like that is not a very big percentage of the dogs that are coming into your care. No, it's not. It's actually a very small percentage of the dogs coming into our care. And, um, you know, we have been fortunate to not have to have kind of a, a written down a of what we consider healthy, manageable and treatable. And, 
we don't have to do like any standardized behavioral evaluations because we know these dogs so well. Um, but the other kind of piece of the puzzle is that we work with amazing transfer partners too. So I'm not saying that none of our animals have gone to a transfer partner and displayed different behavior, right? As their world got opened up a little bit, say they go on field trips, they're put into a foster home, something of that sort, um, and, and potentially been euthanized after the fact or given us the option to take that animal back. And we, we case by case basis every single time. Um, but what we found overwhelmingly is, is that these dogs are really just <laughs> they're good. Potatoes. Yeah. And um, there are some behavioral traits that we're focusing really strongly on right now. You know, some things that we're looking at. Um, Academy for Dog Trainers, Jean Donaldson, and two of her um, her graduates, uh, Laura and Jane. They're local and, and right before COVID, we were going to focus on like acquired bite inhibition. You know, can you train it? Can you not train it? Um, there are there's a certain trait that dog fighters breed for, and it's it's not dog aggression. It's the the want to keep going through anything. So so even if a dog um, dies in a pit, if that dog kept going, that dog is still revered as a good dog, right? It didn't quit. Um, so there's these random kind of you know behaviors that we're focusing on, and we try to like um, look at the big picture and, and kind of pull out these behaviors and and really focus on you know what do we commonly see, what do we not commonly see. And uh, the reality is we bring dogs in and we immediately start triaging them. And we're like, okay, this little young juvenile ding dong is going to do great. Let's get it with other dogs. Let's get it out of here. Let's get it placed. You know, this dog can get adopted in two seconds from a shelter and live a great life. Okay. Now this older dog that, not that bite trauma means everything, but has bite wound pathology consistent with multiple dog bites, things of this sort, is showing really, really uncomfortable behaviors um, and stress signals around other dogs, even, you know, from five feet away in a kennel, you know, let's start working this with that animal. Um, but I think the one that we chose to euthanize, which was a, a moment at the shelter where we had a vet out and all of us were around him having drinks and, and just enjoying every second of it. Um, and it was a long conversation prior to that. Oh, then very it's long. not anything that anybody we had lightly. We sure. had very poor quality of life in kennel, number one. The dog was, was very not doing well in kennel. Um, the dog was extremely, you know, you could not redirect his dog aggression or is displayed toward other animals. And it perceived to be pretty scary, right? And we had resource guarding issues, which we know don't necessarily translate out of the shelter, but when we had all of these compounding factors- And he wasn't super affiliative. He, he was really not affiliative toward humans. Yeah, so, so there were so many things kind of going on there, right? And, um, and that was one that we made the decision for, you know, and, and it's natural for the team to be like, okay, well, this dog did this, and why didn't we euthanize this dog? And this dog did this, and why didn't, you know, but the reality mm -hmm. is when it all comes together, you know, and we look at that, not only for safety of, of the public, but what's it going to do to this dog to transfer this dog to another place, right? Yeah. Um, we're very, we believe it wholeheartedly. We're very big on no matter if a dog's journey ends with us or somewhere else that they made it. They made it. They did not die on that chain. They did not die in that pit. They are no longer a pawn in that game. They are severely loved. And this was the last place they were supposed to be. Right. So, um, so we do, we take, we make that decision as a team. Um, we listen to everybody's input and, uh, and we love those dogs fiercely. And there's been times where our transfer partners have opted for euthanasia too. And we go out there and, um, and we celebrate those dogs. You know, we, we got to keep going and we got to keep getting better. And, um, Every single time we beat it up and think, what could we have done differently, you know, and, and we'll just keep trying, right? It's a very, like you said, Tori, earlier, it's a very imperfect science and uh, especially compounding with the behavior or the shelter behavior aspect. Yeah, we do yeah. the best we can do. And I think we do a damn good job at it too. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Okay. So um, let's talk. I mean, I feel like we need to really do a palate cleanser here and talk about all of the successful placements that have happened, <laughs> right? So for sure. Um, I don't know if you guys want to talk about maybe like a, a favorite dog that went off to get placed to like live its best life. But I know that that's the vast majority of it is that, you know, dogs are going and living really happy lives post like the shitty upbringing or life they had before. Do Crosby. I, I was going to do Sandy Cheeks. Oh, you see, no, you do we Sandy Cheeks. We can do, do Sandy Cheeks. So uh, Sandy was just this little tiny dog. She probably was 35 pounds. She was just a little cute fear dog. And when we got on property to um, take Sandy to Bark Nation, she had slipped out of her collar. So she was loose on this property with maybe, it was a large property. There's probably 12 other dogs um, on property. And we get over to Sandy, we secure Sandy. She's petrified of everything. 
Um, we get to the dog directly behind Sandy and it's deceased and it's freshly deceased. I mean, it's still warm to the touch, um, just absolutely shredded. So, Where's that from? Palette cleanser? <laughs> right, here's our palette cleanser. So we're like, all right, on the way home, we're talking about Sandy. We're like this, you know, 10 minutes into knowing this dog, this is what we're, we're, we're dealing with. Um, our team is amazing. We went at Sandy's pace the, the entire time that she was in our care. Um, I mean, the first maybe week, we were all just bringing her snacks. We were trying to get her to love us. You know, we are bringing her cheeseburgers and bacon and all kinds of good stuff. Also, because we didn't know if we were going to euthanize her sooner than later, if she couldn't pull around, right? Because we didn't know. We didn't know. For sure. Um, we, we worked with Sandy a ton just with, with people. She was very fearful of everybody. You know, she was one that would come up to you, sniff you once and then run back away and then come up again and sniff you and run away. Um, and then time and time again, we would see her in the X-Pen next to another dog and she would become so loose and wiggly and so affiliative and so like a real dog. And we were like, how is this happening? This dog that clearly was engaging in a, a dog fight seconds before we got to her on scene. And now this is her behavior in the shelter with, you know, with another dog. Um, so we started really slow and controlled introductions with Sandy and another dog. Um, and then how long was she in our shelter? Maybe six months or so. Um, yeah, probably. One of the families that had previously adopted a Bark Nation dog, so they currently have a survivor named Major at their house, uh, reached out and they said, hey, we love Sandy. We want to adopt her. And we were like, okay, this is really exciting, but also really scary because, you know, there's other dogs, there's kids, there's all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, going on in this adoption. Um, so we talked to them, you know, at length. We had a couple different meet and greets with both the family and with Sandy and Major. Um, and we get updates like multiple times a week now of those two, they're best friends. They sleep together. They play in the backyard together. Um, it's probably been connecting. six months too, yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. They're, it, it's amazing. And from a dog that literally we pulled her off property and we were like, we don't know if this dog is even going to make it, you know, a, a week or two. And then to have her just live in her best life is just absolutely incredible. I love it. God, that is so beautiful. So, okay, so really quickly, Kelly, I want to hear your success dog too. But um, as far as like the adopters are concerned, it sounds like you guys are like giving a lot of support and like upfront oh, yeah. information right from the get. It's not like uh, let's give you the dog and see how it goes. It's almost like a scared straight scenario where we really lay it out to them and I, say, "I tell Jenna, I'm like, did you tell them that this dog could kill your dog? Like, like if the dog's dog aggressive, like I don't want to downplay it, right? I don't." want this dog becoming a statistic we don't want this dog becoming a statistic we don't want anybody to get harmed and we think that these dogs deserve a slow approach at life they deserve to learn and, and they deserve to learn ways that we can't necessarily help them in a shelter setting so we do we um jenna uh who Corey had referenced earlier um does all of our transfers she sends home like transfer packets to even if they just transfer to a shelter that goes with them and it's all of like setting your dog up for success this is how you this is our contact information this is you join our alumni page which is a closed group just for alumni um and like jenna just got done sending out i don't know 50 presents like boxes with all sorts of christmas presents in it so we have a ton of videos of survivors like tearing through their christmas presents <laughs> and it's so fun yeah so so that's really really important to us is that um they feel heard they understand we do have a lot of people that come to us and say i don't know a lot about this dog's past you know, I adopted this dog from this place, but yeah, you know, they said it was from Bark Nation, but I don't know a ton. So those are really fun because then we get to start talking and we can show photos if they're legal photos at that point, you know, and say, this is where your babe came from. And, uh, you know, and you're well supported. Yeah. yeah. I feel like so many owners are so desperate for that. They just want to know, right? Like what, what happened? Like, where did you come from? How was life like that? And I feel like that gives a lot of owners peace just knowing yeah. all of those details, you know what I mean? Instead of a like, well, we have no idea what this dog's life was like before. And, and honestly, I think sometimes like say another dog is struggling with another dog, it almost gives them permission to just be like, okay, to work on management first, you know, to say, okay, it's okay that my dog is having these feelings. Let's go ahead and cross the front window. You know, um, Jenna's constantly, you know, when resources permit sending out things to help them um, and help them succeed. So, and Jenna's CPDT as well. So, um, so yeah, she's a great resource for all of our, our adopters. Oh my God. And Kelly, I love so much that you said that, right? Like just giving owners permission, like you don't have to rush anything, right? Because I think that, you know, people who ad adopt dogs, especially knowing they came like from a fight situation, I feel like they have this like 
they feel this obligation to make sure that again, this dog isn't another statistic, but really we need to empower them and like, take it slow. You don't have to rush this dog. You don't need to be like the, the greatest like dog intro person ever. Like it is okay to just take things slowly. Absolutely. And it's okay to cover your fence and we'll provide the fence covering if you need it. And it's okay if this dog doesn't want to go on a walk and this dog wants to live the last five years of its life rolling in the grass in the backyard. That's okay. My two dogs, I can do more with them. I know I could, but my dogs have, you know, peace and comfort and they're rotated and they go, they're both fear dogs and they go in the backyard and they like to sit on the couch and eat spray cheese. Like it's okay. <laughs> you know, we don't all have to, I think that's just in dog ownership in general. Say you have a dog that's reactive toward humans. It's okay to have the reactive dog in the bedroom with the Kong when your friends come over. It's okay. You know, if we're asking them to do anything outside of that and we're not vigorously, you know, managing their environment and working behavior modification, then we're not being fair to that dog. And really, a lot of us don't have the time or the skill set or the energy to do it, you know, but we can manage them. We can oh, offer them. Wow. And we can all live really happy, successful lives, right? Like there is yeah. one cookie cutter vision of like what a happy dog's life looks like. Absolutely. Like I look at Tori and I feel like the worst dog mom in the world because she's got like frozen Kongs with chicken feet <laughs> sticking out of them and her dogs go on 17 walks a day. Every time and... we leave the shelter, I'm like, okay, I have to go home and Dale has to do scent work and then we have to go for a walk and then we have to do this. And Kelly's like, you make me want to lay in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> It's different, you know, it's different for everybody. I also have a dog that wants to bite people. So it's like, you have to, uh, you know, you, you have your, you find, like you said before, you find the dogs that you need at the time. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I, we preach I'll dogs are dogs are dogs. Every dog's an individual. We believe it. Um, I, I really do wholeheartedly believe it. And, uh, and, and a stigma on these dogs, I think is just, it's just unfair. And, and we're working to scientifically prove that, you know, dog fighters will have you want to believe that, you know, they, they fight because they want to, and they love to fight. And that's what these dogs are bred for. They're working dogs. You know, I want to do cortisol studies of every set, every time, you know, in the training process and the fighting process versus my, again, fat dog taco sitting on a couch. Like, let's see who's, who's happier. What are, what are we looking at? You know, I mean, we'd love to legitimize um, this even further at some point, you know, resources pending and in so many different ways. Yeah. Right. Just putting data behind what you know already, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess what you know and what you're continuing to learn, right? Because every single dog, right, teaches something new, right? You know, even dogs oh, who yeah. are not the same property are all individuals. They are not the same. Even dogs who are related, even dogs who share a lot of genetic components are still individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. You come into our shelter and it is a huge array <laughs> of, <laughs> of fun. Right. Okay. So Kelly, I want to hear one more success story. Okay. All right, little cross. Um, so we were on a property in July of last year. Um, and it is like the basically felt like the desert it was horrific. And we pulled this big dog. Like he was like 60 some pounds at the time. And that's big for a dog fighting dog. And he is crusty and his eyes are gooped shut. He's and he so is gross. Smells so bad. He was nasty. And I asked the owner, I said, okay, how old is this dog? And he goes, 11. And I said, what's his name? And he goes, he don't have one, which I know he does have a name, but it links to his pedigree. He hands me a dirty bottle of thyroid tabs and says he's got a thyroid issue. And this dog has more bite trauma than I've ever seen on any dog in my life. And so we like, okay, thanks. We get him into the transport vehicle. He busts out of his transport. He's so he's bad. He's so bad. He's so bad. He went, we get him into our shelter and we have to immediately start. Like, this is like our $10,000 dog, right? We immediately, even though he's bad, we're like, listen, you deserve to have good skin too. Like, sure. We immediately get him into like our dermatology partner and all of this stuff. And we start working on it. He humps you. Non-stop. I mean, bruises everywhere. Bruise, you, so just, bad. you couldn't, you couldn't get a word in edgewise with Crosby. We started calling him grandpa Crosby, just old as dirt. And we just sat there forever. And we're like, he's going to live with us for the rest of his life because he's got quality of life. He's the happiest he's ever been in his life. He's so happy. <laughs> got quality of life. He stopped, knocked off his humping, which was great. Just loved to play and whatnot. Um, we tried a trial adoption and he put his head through the reflection of the reflection on an oven just literally punched his head through a piece of, and we're like okay so then we started we literally took a mirror covered it completely cut out like a one inch by one inch hole thinking if he can see his reflection walk past it like how can we start this small this dog within a day was like he didn't care about any reflection it generalized to everything we're like okay well that's a good management step right like this dog's gonna see himself um 
ended up one of our um, our team members uh, had a friend and they fell head over heels. It's a younger couple, head over heels for Crosby. Um, they walk him in like a covered wagon. Um, oh. he, Crosby doesn't get a lot of uh, a lot of freedom when it comes to <laughs> like being able to con connect with another dog. Um, but he he's his uh, Instagram is Crosby Stills and Sass. And this dog just lives the life. And, and I believe in it. I believe that he's not a dangerous dog. And I believe that he's well-managed and that he deserves every, you know, dog bed and pillow and couch snuggle that he can ever get. So um, even for the, the federal agent that this was his case, you know, he constantly stays up on Crosby um, because it's just such a, it's a you huge know, win. It's a huge win that he was able to get placed for sure. Huge, huge, and it's so well managed. And we we recently had a a volunteer run um four marathons in twenty four hours, and Crosby met him like at the finish line almost. So that was really nice for him to get to see him. And yeah, he just he's inspired all of us. And from the grossest dog on the face of this planet to just a couch <laughs> potato, this has been so cool. Oh my God. That is so freaking beautiful. Crosby. Oh my God. Now I'm, I'm just going to stop. You got to go see him. You can see, we'll send you some before and afters. It's not great. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So, um, so I, I wanted to hear from both of you, right. Just because of, of your experience and everything you do, like, I mean, hearing people spew pitbull miss, like, does that just spark a certain kind of in like furious nature from you? Or can you just let it go because you know the truth about them? I think when I first joined Bark Nation, one of the first things that we, um, that was ingrained in me and now that we ingrained in new volunteers is we don't spread negativity. If there's negativity on the Bark Nation page, if you're on Facebook and you see another rescue, you're not going to get into that rescue's comments. Like we are here to educate people. Um, and just like we do in the force free community, it's, it's not going to do any good if you see a balanced trainer and you just jump in that, in those comments and just say how bad they are. Like, the, the way that you're going to make change is by just showing, like, you know, coming in with your amazing force-free dog and just showing that it works. And that's the same thing with pit bulls, I think. Um, and especially, you know, pit bulls that come from dog fighting, you know, they have way more stigmas than, than any other dog out there. Um, and I, I think that the more successful adoptions that we have, and I think that our, our, um, our social media is a nice balance between really sad, this is where our dogs come from and education on why dog fighting sucks. And then posting, you know, stories like Crosby and Sandy of this is how amazing these dogs can do, you know, when, when given the opportunity, they're not killing machines, they're not mauling machines, they're, you know, they're not bred to just do this constantly. Um, so I think that that's, that's the thing, you, you see those negative comments, and you just kind of let them roll off because we have, right now we have what 32 uh, dogs in our care that are just, they're, they're opposite of that, we know that. Um, so that's my long-winded answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, anytime something like tragic happens, especially when it, at least the media portrays something as a pit bull type dog, we immediately got, get on our social media as leadership and we, um, to our team and start saying, hey guys, I know this is really hard to see. I know that, you know, you're going to see the worst of the worst come out in this. Um, like anything in life that's super stratified um, or dichotomous, you know, we're not going to win over a lot of these individuals. The people we can kind of win over our moms and our aunts and our, you know, like we can show great things and, and that's huge. That's huge. But these individuals that are just out to hate pit bull type dogs are going to do that. Right. And so to Tori's point, we a don't, don't engage in negativity. B um, we try to give people an outlet of like, okay, so this is how I would say something like this. Right. Um, and I would say the thing that gets grinds my gears more than just regular pit bull myths are when every dog is a dog fighting dog or every dog is a bait dog or something like that. Like I hate when we create victims and villains. I hate when we mislabel animals because every one of these dogs, if they're a homeless animal is, is a victim of something, right? But, but we've got to speak intelligently and factually on things, not at all for the purpose of, of self-promotion or anything like that. Just for the fact that, you know, I, we have seen the myth of a bait dog become a reality in some situations when it's not an effective training tool. It doesn't happen, you know, in real dog fighting, but because we, we have the need to perpetuate things like this, it does become a reality to some street level individuals that want to engage in this kind of behavior. Right. So, so that is one thing that kind of gets me a little bit more, but to Tori's point, you know, put, we always say that we take in the hard stuff and we try to like put out the good stuff. Right. So the more we can show, pit bull type dogs, the more we can show American pit bull terriers, 
doing amazing things in this world. I think we're going to continuously, even if we're grabbing at one or two people at a time, we're going to get there. Lastly, most people think our dogs are like labs or something because we don't have these huge blocky headed dogs. Nobody really knows what an American Pitbull Terrier is. Seriously. They're small. They're small little muscular creatures. It's like they're not, not and they're not even me. that blocky even, right? No. <laughs> no. no, they got like little almond eyes and like longer snouts. And yes, I know. So that's the other thing is they're always like, is this a lab? And I'm like, no. Sure, if you want to think that, sure. <laughs> whatever you want it to be, but yeah, it is, it is tough. And I think, I think we all need to come together more, especially when we talk about BSL and things of this sort. I think we all kind of pass around old antiquated statistics sometimes, or the age old thing, well, the chihuahua was going to bite more. No, we're, we're just, we're, we're ruining our argument at that point, right? God, right? Throwing another dog under the bus is not the point. Right. No. It's not, it's not. And I think the more that we can, yeah, come together and have positive interactions and positive, you know, communication regarding this and really lead with actual data and statistics and, and give people meaningful opportunities to meet any dog that's a nice dog. You know, if you have a really human social American pit bull terrier or pit bull type, take it to the world, you know, show everybody. That's great, but dogs are dogs. So yeah, they all have the right to make choices. And, and I love so much how y'all show up on social media, right? It's, it's showing people what is possible, right? When we, we give animals the care that they deserve. It's not about going down rabbit holes and, and, and trying to convince people on the internet, right? It's doing the work in real fucking life, right? Like that, that is where you focus. And I have so much respect for, for how y'all show up as human beings and for advocates for, for, for blocky headed or whatever type dog is in your care. So um, <laughs> for everyone you. listening, can you tell them how they can support you? Oh, go. <laughs> You're like, how do people support us? We don't know. Um, so we are on Facebook and Instagram, the Spark Nation. You can find us uh, on either one. We currently have one big uh, donation drive going. By the time this airs, we will not have that donation okay, drive Okay, so anymore, yeah, but... I guess we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> but we also constantly have our Amazon wish list that's posted both on our Instagram and our Facebook. Um, we have our, our uh, website, sparknation.org. You can figure out how to become a P2 partner, which is our, our monthly donor program. And P2, we didn't even say this. P2 stands for Pitness Protection. So this is our Pitness Protection Project <laughs> where we house these animals confidentially. Absolutely. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to connect with us. We have a team of, uh, of people that respond to all the messages. So anytime you try to contact Spark Nation, you're going to get some sort of response back. Amazing. Oh my God. People are going to be so stoked. Hopefully you just get like every Amazon wish list just filled. Oh, Yay! I love that. I hope so. <laughs> Ellie, Tori, it has been a total delight and an honor to chat with you tonight. Thank you so much for being such a fantastic human beings and, and spending your evening chatting with me. Aww. Absolutely. Thank Thanks, you Rachel. so much. Back at you. All right, everybody, I know that CBD is a hot topic and rightfully so. There's a lot of misinformation surrounding CBD, but I tell you what, there's a lot of pretty amazing evidence for how amazing CBD can be for not only humans, but also for our pets. Uh, the ladies at VetCS uh, were on the podcast recently. It was episode 148. Give it a listen. You will learn a lot. Um, but I use VetCS products for me. I use VetCS products for the dogs. And I tell you what, Tiva, as she ages, the CBD is just amazing for her arthritis. And Waylon greatly benefits from the CBD too. So if you've been considering CBD for you or for your pet, check out VetCS.com. And you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, it's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.